We're going to take a break from working through Genesis. We're not quite halfway through. Actually, we're about halfway through as far as how long it will take me to preach through but the book of Genesis. But this is an issue that I've seen come up a lot in the last few weeks. And so um, I decided this is something I've studied intently at times for more than a decade. And so we're going to talk about it today. Before we do, I want to say I'm so appreciative to you fathers out there, Father's Day. I think it's incredible if you would, um, there's, there's a, a website that's been made, uh, it's called the National Fatherhood Initiative. It's incredible to see statistics of what fatherless homes account for. Um, I would submit to you that being a father, being a mother, being a parent is probably the hardest work you'll ever do, and it's definitely the most rewarding work that you'll do. It is intense discipleship, and it is the people in your life that get to see you at the best and the worst, right? If you only see me at church and a few other times throughout the week, you might get the idea that I've just kind of got it all together. But if you lived with me like my children do or my wife does, guess what you would get to see? You get to see all the rough parts of me too, wouldn't you? Yes. Um, So that you know how important fathers are, almost ten times a greater risk, that's an order of magnitude, for a child to commit um, a felony crime, uh, a violent felony crime, almost ten times higher if they're from a fatherless home. It's incredible. Uh, more than 700% higher chance of them being uh, incarcerated in prison. Seven times more likely to become a unwed teen mother. There are a lot of those things that can be traced back to fatherless homes. And so I would submit this. If we are Christians in our word, we should be Christians in our deed. And part of that, obviously, is certainly how we raise our family. We should be men. We should be present and disciple-making as fathers. So I want to say that I appreciate those of you that are doing just that. Now, let's get into what we're here to get into. If you'll turn with me, let's go to Romans 13. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I am going to tell you today we're going to get to a piece that... In, um, in theological or ethical terms, this is often called a qualified universal imperative. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? How can you have qualified and universal together? What does universal mean? It's unqualified. It applies to everybody. The very next word is qualified. What does that mean? It applies in some situations and not others. It's qualified. How can you have a universal qualified imperative, or sometimes it's called a qualified universal imperative? How can you have that? We're going to talk about that today. What does it mean? What does it look like? How does that apply? In what issues does it apply? Does it apply to everyone? Sometimes, by the way, we as Christians get the wrong idea about biblical ethics. We think that all biblical ethics apply to everyone the same, and they do not. There are imperatives, that is to say commands. Imperatives are commands. There are commands that Jesus gives to some groups of people that he does not give to other groups of people. Why don't you let that sink in? If you think that Jesus' commands apply to everyone the same, you are mistaken. There are things that Jesus says for some people to do that does not apply to others. There are things that Jesus tells fathers to do that do not apply to mothers. There are things that Jesus tells children to do. Are you you with me here? Okay. There are universals, though, as well. There are some things that Jesus gives to everybody. And by the way, there are some things Jesus gives not just to Christians. He gives them to everyone. So the very end, let me let me qualify it by saying this. The very end of Matthew, the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Because I have all authority in heaven and earth, therefore I'm telling you, go make disciples. In other words, your disciple-making efforts will be fruitful. 
Why? Because I am the one that has all authority. The devil does not have all authority. I have spoiled him on the cross. I have how much authority, by the way? <laughs> Some. I love this. This is the point that we will we will say this as Christians and really not believe it because we say it so often. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Really? All authority? Jesus is king over all. He's Lord over all. Yeah, he's Lord over all. Is he Lord over politics? Well, we shouldn't be involved in politics. Why? Is Jesus the king over politics or not? Is Jesus the king over your business? Is he the king over education? Is he the king over... Are you understanding where I'm going with this? He is the king over all. Period. Full stop. That is unqualified. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. Okay, now, on that basis, on the basis that Jesus has been given all authority, therefore, we're going to get into this passage. Actually, not just this passage, but a couple of other passages as well. But this passage today, we're going to talk about what's called a theology of state. How is the Christian... To interact with the state, the government. There are some very important points that need to be brought out. And part of the reason I think they need to be brought out is I think we are rapidly approaching the time. In fact, I think we're in the time. But if not, we're rapidly approaching the time when we're going to see things the government says or does, imperatives that the government gives that are diametrically and directly opposed to things that Jesus says. And the first thing that you're going to hear in the discussion is going to be, you should do that because you're a Christian. And I have news for you. There are times when you are not to submit to the government. However, here's the other part. The problem is, there are also times when you don't want to submit and Jesus says you're supposed to. There are commands that the government gives that are amoral. What does that mean? Well, they're not necessarily moral or immoral. They are amoral. Let me give you an example. If the government comes out tomorrow and through the proper channels, okay, let's, let's get this straight. This is not legislating from the bench. If a whole bunch of our um, representatives make a law and they say we're going to have a national speed limit, it's going to be 35 miles an hour. Do you know what you would do? You know what I would do? That's not right. I'm not obeying. I have news for you. That might not be right, but it's not unjust. It is amoral. There is no place in the scripture that says it is sinful for a government to give you a speed limit. Well, what would my job be then? Well, my job would be to submit to that while I'm working to change it. Okay, listen, the government says 35 miles an hour is the speed limit. That is going to make my trip to see my folks in Kansas about 16 hours. I am going to work to change that. Do you understand? But I should also be, while I'm working on that, I should also be following the command of Scripture. Okay, so let's get into that. I'm going to let you know right up front, there are a lot, I mean a lot, of books on this subject. And I have read some of them. I have not read, obviously, all of them. And they range all over the place. I actually think in this entire group here, there's seven of them that I've read Either parts or whole of, I, I think in that group, uh, possibly Gary DeMar's book may be the best. It's kind of got the old schoolist cover. I mean, that looks like an 80s book for sure, doesn't it? But he does a very good job of laying out principles that are very um, germane to the argument. So, um, now you know. Uh, there's some other places that have some really pithy. That's good, isn't it? Pithy, what does that mean? Short, sweet, to the point, right? They don't go about all this. Um, GotQuestions.org has a really good um, article on it. It is, it'll probably take you seven minutes total, maybe less, to read. Very, very good. They're pretty good. I, a long time ago, I actually wrote some articles for this, this website. They do a pretty good job usually. Okay, so, and the question is, do Christians have to obey the laws of the land? This comes up a lot. Uh, I can remember the first time I was ever confronted with this issue, I was actually in... A Methodist Bible study. Remember, I grew up a good Methodist boy, okay? For better or worse, for good or bad, that's how I grew up. And I was in a Methodist college Bible study, and basically the guy was saying, look, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says we should submit to government. Okay. 
what if, what if we're in the government of Hitler? And he says, I want you to kill your Jewish neighbor. Or I want you to hand your Jewish neighbor over to be killed. Should we submit to that? And the guy said, yeah. So the Bible says, now I have news for you, okay? There are two exceptions to this rule. I'm going to show them to you today. There are only two, but they are very important. All right? Now, so let me just leave you hanging on that. Let's, uh, let's get into this. All right. 13. Romans chapter 13. By the way, the book of Romans is set up uh, like a lot of Paul's writings, where you have part of it is basically theology, and part of it is application of that theology, right? So orthodoxy, orthopraxy, remember those are the two words we talked about. Orthodoxy means the right thinking, right? The right theology, if you will. Orthopraxy is how do you apply that to your life? The right way to walk that out. Praxy, practice. Ortho meaning right or correct. Ortho straight, actually. So orthodontist, straight teeth. That's literally what it means. You go to the orthodontist, straight teeth. Straight walking, straight sound living. That's orthopraxy. Romans 13 is in the orthopraxy section of Romans. Basically, the first 11 chapters of Romans tells us orthodoxy. This is how, this is, this is the theology of, if you will, of the gospel. And then from 12 on, we get, here's how you take that and then live that out. And chapter 13 lands smack in the middle of that. Here's how you walk this out. How should you relate to your government? If there's anyone who's well qualified to tell us, it's Paul. Right? Who is a Jew of Jews and a Roman citizen. Imagine Paul making the argument, don't militarize the police. Hey, quit militarizing the police. The police are literally the military. That's what Rome was, right? Uh, the Pax Romana. Hey, we're going to put a bunch of soldiers among everybody. Now, sometimes that works really well, and sometimes it doesn't work so well, right? So the one soldier asks Jesus, hey, what should I do? Jesus says two things, right? Quit, don't intimidate people, right? And quit complaining about your wages. Like, that is, that's, that would work today. That's relevant today, right? You signed up. Don't complain about your wages. That's tough. I'm a teacher. Right? You get where I'm going here? Okay. All right. Let's get into this. 13.1 says this. Let every person. There's the universal. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, plural. That's important. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. It's as if Paul thinks that God's sovereign or something. I'll come back to this part. 13.2 says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, plural, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive his approval. 13.4, for he is God's servant. By the way, if you'd like to know the Greek word here, it is the same word we use for deacon. He is God's ordained servant. In fact, some translations say he is God's minister because it is... It is the same word that we use for deacon. He is God's deacon. In God's providence, in his governmental structure, this is God's deacon. He's doing work for God. That's sometimes hard to hear. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, you should be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. Notice he bears the sword. He bears the ability to do violence. And he's working on God's behalf. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is 
diakonos, the servant of God, an avenger to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He is to carry out God's mercy. He's to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It should not surprise you that he may do that. 13.5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Notice it says must be in subjection. You are subject to him, like it or not. Not only to avoid God's wrath. In other words, if you decide not to be, you will incur wrath. And guess whose wrath it is? It's God's wrath. But also for the sake of conscience. 13.6 For because of this, you pay taxes. How strange. Because of this, because he's God's minister, he's doing God's work. God says you are required to pay him. For the authorities are ministers, same word, deacons of God, attending to this very thing. Their job is to execute wrath. It should not surprise you that they execute wrath. That should not come as some sort of like out of left field. I cannot believe they did that. 13.7 Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Look at this. Respect to whom respect is owed. You owe respect. Because God has commanded it. Even in the times when you are unable to obey, you still owe respect. And when you decide to be disrespectful to God's authorities, you are spitting in God's face, not just theirs. You'll notice the Hebrew boys that would not bow down to the statue did not spit at Nebuchadnezzar and call him names and tell him what kind of worthless whatever he was. What do they do? O king, live forever. They were respectful. But nevertheless, we will not obey your command. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire. But even if he does not, know that we will never bow down to this statue. They did it right. They did what was right and they did it in the right way. You understand that you can do what's right and do it in the wrong way and be 100% wrong. Even though you should have been in the right there's a right way to do right things too. Which is why the scripture says that Jesus, uh, the law came through Moses, but what came through Jesus? Truth and grace. He did the right thing in the right way. We don't do that. <laughs> we, we like to, if we think we're in the right, we like to cause a stink on it. And we'll let everybody know. And we'll start throwing the words around that we shouldn't throw around and we'll do it the wrong way and we'll have a wrong witness. It's true. Trust me, I don't like it any more than you do. Because when I'm right, I like to rub it in people's faces, right? Rub it in your nose. Rub your nose in this. But that's not an imitation of Christ. They all to whom what is owed to them, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. There are those that we should honor, even when they're wrong. Have there been times when my boss has been wrong about something? Yes, of course. Have you ever had a boss that was wrong about something? I'm sure you have because your boss has been human. Yes, they were wrong about something. They treated you wrong. They made the wrong decision corporately. They treated someone else wrong. They had bad judgment. They didn't have correct discernment. Certainly. So then the way that you, you take care of that, of course, is in the, in the meeting with all the other employees, you start throwing accusations out. You raise a stink. You dishonor them. You disrespect them. Is that the way you do it? Well, the truth is, that's the way a lot of us do it. And the truth is, that way is condemned by God and by His Word. 
By the way, 1 Peter says the same thing. Be subject for the Lord's sake. What? It does not be, say in this passage to be subject for your sake. Romans says you should be subject for your sake. Peter says, by the way, the reason you're subject is for the Lord's sake. Why? Because the way that you, you come about this says something about your witness, says something to the others, says something to those over you, says something to your boss, says something to the authority, says something to the senator, says something to the cop, says something to the judge, says something to the... Do you understand what I'm saying here? Be subject to every human institution. Some translations say every human authority. Be subject to the authorities. Your life should be characterized by someone who is honorable toward authorities. Why? Because the day will probably come when your authority tells you either to do something that God has forbidden, and you're not going to follow that command, or they're going to tell you, they're going to forbid something that God commands, and you're not going to follow that command. But if you're just someone who's just a rebel, you're, you're standing up and saying, I'm not going to follow that, is no different than normal. And it's probably not going to have much effect on the people that you're around. Who cares? You don't do anything you're supposed to do anyway. You don't have any honor or respect for any authority anyway. So why do I care that you're upset about this now? Why do I care that you're protesting this now? That's no different than always. However, if you're a person who is honorable and respectful and you're known for that, and the day comes when you are told to do something that God forbids and you say, look, I'm sorry, but I, I cannot do that. My God says not to. And though I want to honor you and I want to do what I'm supposed to do, I want to do my job well, I cannot and I will not follow that. Think it might have a little more impact? Darn right it will. I, I, I thought you were the person that was always honorable and you're always respectful and you always do what you're supposed to do. You do what you're told. Yeah. Yeah, but the reason is because my allegiance is to a higher law. My allegiance to you comes out of my allegiance to Christ. Christ tells me that I'm supposed to honor you and therefore I do. But when you tell me to do something that Christ forbids me to do, I, I will not do that. That's important. That's being salt and light. Just being a person that has no respect for any authority at all has no salt and light to it. You're the one that's missing the mark then. Your protest has no sting, if you will, has no weight, because your character has no weight. That hurts, doesn't it? I know that hurts. I'm pretty stinking libertarian. I don't like anybody telling me what to do, just like most other humans. We want to be our own bosses. But the truth is, we are subject to authority because of Christ. The truth is, Christ has instituted authorities. He has ordained them. That means He has set them apart to His purpose. Now, I will say this. It's a little bit strange in our land because, quite frankly, our founding fathers were geniuses. And so they specifically set up our government in such a way that the, the ultimate law of the land is not a person, not one. The ultimate law of the land is a document. It's the law, right? It is lex rex. The law is king. And so that's a big deal. Why? Well, because in this culture, uh, if someone tells me to do something that the, the Constitution condemns, I am not under, in fact, I am not under legal obligation to abide by it even if they try to enforce it. Now, that's strange, and that has, that has very real ramifications for any Christian living in America. And I realize that. And I'll get into some of that later, but I'm not going to get into it today. So here's the question that comes about then, okay? Here's the question that comes about when we come through Romans. We get into chapter 13, and we see very clearly God is saying, your job is to be subject to the authorities. By the way, not just the ultimate authority, Authorities, plural. 
You should be honorable and respectful to the authorities, period. You should be honorable and respectful to your parents, even if your parents tell you something that you can't obey, okay? Will it ever happen, is it ever the case that a Christian child will be told by their parent to do something that God forbids? Yes, that has happened. Let me give you an example, okay? When I was a youth pastor. When I was a youth pastor, there was a young lady that got born again, and she was, I think, 16. And I could tell something was troubling her. She just, you know, she always just seemed like her peace was gone for about a month. And so finally I pulled her aside. I was like, okay, what's, what's wrong? She says, what's going on? Like, something's going on. She's like, well, I'll, I'll tell you, but it's, you're going to think it's crazy. And I was like, well, bring it on. Well, you know, my family's pretty heavy into drugs. Yeah, that's, that's, her family was pretty well known for that. She was like, well, that's, that's our family time. And what do you mean? Well, for family time, what we do is we, we sit down uh, together in the front room and we do drugs together and we watch a certain show. These are illegal drugs, right? This is not, we're not sipping caffeine together, correct? Yes. Yes, we all have a lot of marijuana that we have purchased illegally and we sit around and we smoke it together and we watch this show and that's our family time. And I've never had a problem with it. So when did this start? I think I was maybe 12. She's like, I really, I really feel convicted about it though. <laughs> Imagine. Yep. I don't know what to do. I'm supposed to obey my parents. I'm actually supposed to honor your parents. So they tell me if I don't, if I don't smoke this, I'm not part of the family. They don't want me around. What do I do? What would your advice be? Is it the law that that drug is illegal? Yeah. Unless you have an exemption card, I guess. Yes, it is. Is it therefore immoral for a Christian to partake of it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Does the government have the ability, if it does it correctly... To make a law regarding that? Yeah. Do they have the ability to make a law regarding the speed limit? Yeah. Do they have a law, uh, the ability to make a law regarding seatbelts? Trust me, there is nothing I hate more than changing stinking baby chairs, you know, booster seats out of all the, the cars. I've got four kids that are five and under. And the government says I have to have them in these stupid seats until they're, you know, 18 or 250 pounds. I don't know. They're a long time, though. It's, it's, I think it's ridiculous. Do I ever say that? Yes. Have I ever written an email to a senator because of that? Yes. Do I still follow that rule? Yes. Why? Because that's what God tells me to do. Here's the question, though, that often comes up because of that. Now that I've said all of that, all of that is my preface, that your life should be characterized by honoring, being subject to, being respectful of your authorities. Your life should be characterized that way. You should not be characterized as the guy that's the smart mouth to their boss. Or the smart mouth to the cop. Or the smart mouth to the judge. Or the smart mouth to the senator. Or the smart mouth to... Do you understand where I'm going with that? Or the smart mouth to the pastor. No, our lives should be characterized by reverence and respect and honor. I've heard this a lot, right? Well, they'll get my respect when they earn it. I got news for you. Jesus says they did. He ordained them. And those that he ordains are worthy of your respect. That hurts. And I know it hurts me too. Trust me, when I see somebody being what I think of as stupid, when I see an authority being a jack wagon, I want to be a jack wagon back. And we live in a culture that says, oh, that's cool. Whoever gets the last word and has the smartest mouth and the quickest wit, they're cool. It shouldn't surprise us that what the culture deems as cool, what the culture deems as good, is antithetical to what Christ says. Now, having said all of that, <laughs> there are qualifiers 
We've said this. Oh, forgot I've got to go back in this. We've said this. This passage, these passages are what are called universal qualified imperatives, or sometimes it's called a qualified universal imperative. Universal meaning every person is, is told to do this. Every person, regardless of government structure. What if I live in a land where there's a king and he is depraved? Well, guess what? Good news for you. That's basically what Paul lived during, right? What Paul lived under. Okay, well, what if I don't live under a king? What if I live under a, uh, an oligarchy? This, you know, ruling class of elites. Well, good news. No qualifier in here. Let every person, every person, husband, wife, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person. Okay, that's the universal part of the passage. It applies to everybody. There are no exceptions for bad governments. Trust me, I would love to find one. And trust me, I've looked. Because I think our government is wicked and getting more wicked by the day. The good thing is, many of our founders set this country up in a manner that that can be rectified legally. Because they set it up on biblical principles. Not all the founders were Christians, don't get me wrong, obviously. But the principles, the precepts that they set the government up under was because they believed Christian precepts, Christian principles. They believed man is sinful. And if you give one man power, he will abuse it. Okay, so we've got to separate these powers. And the Old Testament tells us, here's how this is happening. What was, the, uh, what was the, the lingo of the day? What was the, the, basically the, the, the logo, if you will, of the revolution was no king but Christ, no king but Jesus. We're going to have a country where there is no king. We're going to have a country where King George can pound sand. It's, it's, it's wise, the way they set it up. But there's no such thing as a country with no authority. There's not. The first thing that will happen, even in a war, you have a war, okay? Let's just say we have a war. We have total anarchy. The first thing that will happen is a government will be instituted. You know why? Because you can't protect yourself. It's true. I can. Hey, I've got an AR. I've got more than one AR. I did. They lost all of them. Voting accident. But at one time, a lot of ARs, right? Yeah, I do. There's no doubt about it. I have rifles and pistols, and I'm reasonably good with them. I've passed a shooting test. I've become an instructor, a pistol instructor. Do you think I am going to be able to stand at my door and hold off 40 government agents that have decided to stack on the outside? No. But I probably can, can hold off a bad guy. Or two, maybe a car full. Do you think I'd be able to hold off 40? That's what happened in the Wild West. Right? Why did you have to have a sheriff? Because <laughs> bad guys know, hey, wait, time out. We can't take the one guy alone, but dude, if we all get together, take whatever we want. We can rustle that dude's entire herd. There's 30 of us. We've all got guns, and he's got a gun. There's 30 versus one, no problem. And eventually what has to happen? Okay, we've got to have some sort of way to be able to protect people from people. Do you understand? Yeah, there's going to be a government instituted. And Jesus says our job is to be respectful and to be honorable. But there are certain very important exceptions. Here's the question that I get. Because of this. Because of this qualified imperative, this command that applies to everyone, but does have very important qualifications, here's always the question that I get asked. It's the same question I asked so many years ago in that college study. Does that mean a Christian always has to obey the government? It is very important that you wrestle with this and come to grips with it. Okay, when you ask me this, I'm not going to lie. In my mind, I'm going to think, of course not, you nitwit. But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say, no, not necessarily, because there are some... Biblically qualified exceptions. What are those exceptions? There are two exceptions. If those are the exceptions, what are they? Anytime the government forbids what God's word commands or commands what God's word forbids. 
we are told not to obey. And in fact, God will bless us for not obeying. And I'm going to give you some examples of that in Scripture. The problem is this, though. The problem is we want to obey what we don't like. Okay, if the government comes out tomorrow, right? All the legislators get together and they go, you know what we really like? Man, we like pink socks. Man, pink socks would make us stand out as a state. It's not enough what they did to the logo. That still burns me up. Anyway, pink socks would just make us all stand out. Let's pass a law. And we're going to issue pink socks to every single person in Oklahoma, and they have to wear them. Question. Is that a sinful command? No, I think it's stupid. I'm going to lie. Okay? But it is not sinful. It would be amoral. Jesus does not condemn the government for issuing out pink socks and telling us we have to wear them. I don't want to wear pink socks. No. The question is not whether you want to. The question is whether you will obey. That's the truth. There's no such thing as a Christian without obedience. That's part of your life. Obedience, by the way, does not make you a legalist. It makes you a follower of Christ. You can't be a follower of anybody if you don't do what they say. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Okay. Jesus even said that, right? Why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I tell you to do? Don't call me Lord if you're not going to follow my commands. I'm not your Lord if you don't follow my commands. Are you with me here? If you are born again, you will, you, maybe imperfectly, and it may be little by little, but you will begin following the commands of the Lord. And I'm telling you, this is a command of the Lord. However, what about those important exceptions? What about if the government tells me to do something that God forbids? Okay, yes, then you are call, not just called, you're commanded to disobey. You do have a higher law. All authority has not been given to the United States government. All authority in heaven and earth has not been given to the king or the queen or the monarch or the dictator. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to who? King Jesus. And King Jesus tells me this. When those governmental systems put laws in place that do not directly violate my commands. You are to obey them. That's hard for us. We want to obey what we like. Same things. You ever seen a kid do that? You ever do that when you were a kid? You still do that? Sure. Listen, if you only submit to what you like, you've never submitted in your life. Submission. Sub. Under. Mission. Agenda or purpose. Submission is not a dirty word, it's a Christian word. Submission means I take my agenda and purpose and I put it underneath the one that God has told me to. If you only obey when you agree, ladies, you've never submitted to your husband in your life then. And if I only obey when I agree, I have never submitted to Jesus. And if you only obey when you agree, you've never submitted to the government. And you are told to submit to the government. Except. Except when that government gives orders and it forbids what God commands or it commands what God forbids. Those are the only two exceptions we're given in Scripture. And they are incredibly important exceptions. Let me give you four examples of that. And here's why I think this is so important, by the way. I think we are rapidly coming to the point where we are, we are, have already seen it. But we are coming to the point where it is going to impact you. This is one of those issues that we've been able to, in the West, kind of think about eh, kind of aloofly, right? Now that, that's, that's what happens over there in, you know, Sierra Leone or, you know, Zimbabwe. Right? That's what happens over there in, you know, Eastern Bloc countries or in Russia or in a communist country in Red China or North Korea. It doesn't happen here. I got news for you. It happens here and it's going to happen more. And at some point, you are going to have to stand up and say, I will not obey. And yet, you're going to have to do that in a manner that is still honorable and respectful. Because that is right in God's eyes. So let me give you four examples of when this happened in Scripture. 
Acts 5. <coughs> Pushing down on this one. And, uh, yeah, okay. Let's try this. Acts 5, 27 and 29. What happens? Well, the apostles, the disciples, have been out preaching about Jesus, right? And the authorities that be drag them in and say, look, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, not to teach in Jesus name. Hey, you you guys are you're, you're dead set that you're going to bring this guy's blood on us. <laughs> they were so right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. In, in every way you can think of. Yeah, we're going to charge you guilty and we want you to be under his blood for forgiveness. Yes, we're going to we're trying. And they said this, you will no longer preach in this name. And what did the apostles say? Hey, uh, we're going to obey God rather than men. Okay, then we're going to beat you. They knew they were going to be beaten. They knew that. And guess what they did? They took it. They suffered for their faith. Listen, if you get pulled over, and it's for a stupid law, you get pulled over because you were doing 70 and a 40, you're like, this is a stupid law, which I might agree. This is a stupid law, and you start cussing at the cop, and, and then you get arrested? Don't tell me you were being persecuted. No, you weren't being persecuted. You decided to act like a fool, and you got treated like one. What did Peter say? We're going to obey God rather than men. Did he call them names? Did he slander their character? No. Could he have? Sure, they're snakes. They're a brood of vipers. Could they have? Yes. Did they? No. That's an important distinction. And yet they still disobeyed. Did God bless them for that? Yes. Did they fill Jerusalem with that doctrine? Yes. Not just Jerusalem. Right? To the point that they're like, you guys have turned the entire world upside down. Yes, they have. If the government comes out tomorrow and says, you may no longer preach in this name, what are you going to do? If your job says you cannot talk to people about Jesus, what are you going to do? <laughs> That's tough. That's part of me. It's going to happen. But I'm still going to do it in a respectful manner. Here's another one. I think this is, I think this is maybe the best example. Right? We look at Exodus 1. What happens? King gives an order. I want all those Jewish babies, two years and under, killed. All the boys, wipe them out. Should they have obeyed that order? That's what the king said. That's what the government said. Romans 13. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women... When they're on the birthing stool, if it's a son, you're going to kill him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And verse 20 says, so God dealt well with them. By the way, not only did they not do what the king commanded, they lied to him about it. Did you notice that? They lied to him about it. And God blessed them for their lie. I know this is not Christianity 101 today. Okay, I get that. Are you telling me there are times when I should lie to my government? Yes. I hope that day doesn't come, but I fear it will. If the authorities knocked on your door and said, Hey, do you know where your Jewish neighbors are? And you were hiding them under the floorboards or in your wall. Should you lie to the authorities to save and rescue their life? Yes! And by the way, if we're my son, just to throw something else out there, if we're really going to be sticklers on it, the Ten Commandments does not say don't lie. It says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. There are actual times when you will be forced to lie if you live in the wrong place. If my Islamic government comes to my door and says. I'm looking for your Christian neighbor. We heard he was witnessing in the park, and he's going to be put to death. Do you know where he is? If he was hiding under my floorboard, do you think I'm going to go, yeah, he's right here under the floorboard? Uh, no. I'm going to lie. 
just like the midwives did. And God dealt well with them. In fact, so well that he gave them families over it. That was a big deal in that day and time. I know this is not Christianity 101. I know it's not. I know it's going to force you to wrestle with some tough issues. I want you to wrestle with those issues. And guess what? You're probably not going to have a perfect answer, and I'm not either. Because this principle has to be applied. And when you put principles into application, things can get messy. All right? They are. That's why you can have so many godly men that agree on this principle. And then when it comes to the application, they are just at each other's throats. I shouldn't say that. I each other's throats. But they disagree. Why? Because the application of this can get messy. Do you know what happened in, in Nazi Germany, by the way? Just to bring up some history. As Hitler was gaining more and more power, and as his party was basically taking over and dominating the culture, the society, he realized he had one major force opposing him. What was it? Christian church. Germany was the land of Luther. The church was opposing him. Germany at the time was kind of like America. Like that was the place where you sent people if you wanted them to learn about God. They had all these seminaries, all these, you know, great higher institutions of learning. They're very storied. We did the same thing, which we shouldn't have, because at the time liberalism was taking over. We start sending our guys over to Germany to learn theology, and they come back spouting the same liberalism. Go figure. What happens? He realizes, hey, these Christians, they're opposing me. I got a plan. Calls basically like an assembly, kind of like Constantine. Calls this assembly, right? Says, hey, we've got to, we've got to vote for some church positions, uh, some official positions. You know, we, we want them, we want these church people, obviously, to be advisors. Uh, but at the same time, we want some of these, um, you know, friends of mine who are also theologians. They should have prominence in, um, in these church positions, these high up church positions. So let's have a vote. He gets his guys in. And the first thing that they do is they teach Romans 13. You bunch of Christians, your job is to obey the government. Well, what they do is they teach it as an unqualified imperative. Your job is to always obey the government in every capacity, in every way, in every circumstance. There were some really good men, though, that stood up and said, no, that's that's not quite right. Our job is to honor and respect and obey. But if you give a law that God forbids, we are not to. In fact, not only are we not to obey it, we are to resist it. One of the most well-known was a guy by the name Bonhoeffer. I think Bonhoeffer went a little too far and I think he paid for it with his life. Bonhoeffer said, hey, this is not right. We are to resist. He's right about that. We are to resist. Good. You should. And so even during the war, of course, they're helping different resistance factions. They're helping smuggle resistance fighters in. They're, they're, they're helping resist. Finally, Bonhoeffer says, that's it. I'll do this. I'll take care of this. Bonhoeffer was an old war veteran, by the way. He was a World War I veteran. Okay. I, I remember reading his, read a couple of biographies on Bonhoeffer. One of them was he had had a class with another veteran. He had come over to the States. And he had a class, and in, the, in that class was another guy that literally they fought against each other in World War I. I mean, they were on opposite sides. I don't know if they're in the same battles. But the guy, and he get to talking one day during a break, and he's like, hey, what, what do you think would have happened if we were in World War I and we ended up shooting each other, and then we see each other in heaven? Realize, I just shot and killed my Christian brother. And Bonhoeffer's like, I don't know. At that point, I probably would have been happy enough to laugh. I don't think you would which is one of the real problems I have with some of the ways that our, our military operates. Don't get me off on that sidetrack. But the truth of the matter is, Bonhoeffer and others knew, no, there is a time when we, we must resist. We will not obey. And that is when our government gives us a command that is in direct opposition to King Jesus. It's not when the government gives us a command that we just don't like. I don't like pink socks. I don't like the speed limit. I don't either. So does that mean we should just go along and just give up? Hey, we don't need to say anything. Hey, they've made the law. Big deal. It's the law. No, of course not. Of course you work to change laws. If those laws are unjust, if those laws are oppressive, 
Yes, of course, you work to change them. But if those laws do not directly contradict God's law, you are not able to stand up and say, well, I just won't obey that because I don't like it. No, you're going to obey it and work to change it. Third example. Why do I keep doing this? All right. Third example. How about Daniel? King gives a decree. Nobody is going to pray except to me. 30 days, right? What does Daniel do? Goes home. Sneaks into his prayer closet. Hides himself away. No, he doesn't. He actually does something pretty bold. What does he do? Goes home. Opens the windows. Bows himself down. So everybody can see, I'm still praying. Did he call the king bad names? No. Did he decry his stupidity? No. But he would not obey. Why? Because the Lord had told him to pray. You have just tried, you have just forbidden something that God commands. I will not obey that command. But I will do it with honor and respect and proper reverence. So what happens? He gets thrown in the lion's den. What does God do? Shuts the mouth of the lions. I love the turnaround. I think the end of this is the best part. And they always leave it out of the kids' movies. So I literally tell my kids how this works. Probably going to be scarred for life because of that. But what happens? The king actually likes Daniel. Why does the king like Daniel? Do you think the king would have had that kind of affection for Daniel if Daniel, instead of obeying the way that he did, would have started spouting off, calling him names, being disrespectful, being dishonorable? No. But what was Daniel? Well, Daniel was one of his wise men who was also respectful and honorable and honest at the same time. Most people have trouble doing that. It's true. Most people have trouble being honest in a respectful manner. We want to put the brutal in honesty, don't we? I was raised in a house like that. It's every sitcom we've ever seen, right? But Daniel wasn't that way. He did not obey he gets thrown into the lion's den. God shuts the mouths of the lions because the Bible says he saw Daniel's innocence. Daniel had done nothing against the king. He had obeyed his God like he was supposed to do. God shuts the mouths of the lions. The king is sick. He can't even sleep all night because he loves Daniel. He doesn't want something bad to happen to Daniel. As soon as first light hits, he's out there. Hey, are you still alive? Yes, O king, live forever. God sent his angel, shut the mouth of the lions. And then the best part. Good. Now, where's your accusers? They get their turn. Daniel's pulled out. The accusers get thrown in. What happens to them? They don't even hit the bottom. God gives them what they deserved. Final one that I'll give you. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Same book, by the way. Find it in Daniel chapter 3. King sets up a golden image, a golden idol, and says everybody's going to bow down and worship this golden idol. And what do these guys do? Everybody bows down and they're standing. Notice that they were, the, the way that they um, protested this unjust, ungodly law. Did they shout accusations at the king? Did they get disrespectful? Did they get dishonorable? No. King's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you bowing down? I told you you're supposed to bow down. Look, king, oh king, live forever. That's respectful. Not I hope you, a pox on you, I hope you die. Right? That's like you watch Robin Hood, a pox on the phony king of England, right? That's might not be the way we're supposed to go about that. No. King, look, you've given us a, a command we cannot obey. And if you throw us into the furnace, please know our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, and he might not, we're still not going to bow down to an idol. It's against our God's commands. They were prepared to die for the commands of their God. And I think in their minds, that's probably what they thought was going to happen. They throw them in and what happens? Christ is in the fire with them. And they come out without even smelling like smoke. The fire is so hot, it kills the guys that throw them in. And yet they're walking around in the fire with Jesus protected. Did you know 
that you can go through incredible trials and fires and God can walk through it with you and deliver you through it? Do you know you will have trials? You will have trials. There are no exceptions. You will have trials. And yet, Christ promises, if you're His, He will walk through those with you. Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have nothing to fear. Why? Because He's walking with you. He's walking with you. Even when it's the entire government that's coming down on you. Listen, if our government gets to the place where they are persecuting Christians, and trust me, they are to the place where they are persecuting Christians, okay? Just read an article about a, a woman, blind woman, who lives next to a park in Rhode Island, and she goes to the park and hands out tracts, uh, hands out gospel, little gospel of John's, and tells people about Jesus, and the park had her arrested and said, you can't come back, we're banning you for two years, we don't want you to talk about Jesus. That's not in... Communist Russia, that's in Rhode Island. That's here in the United States. Yes, there certainly is persecution in the U.S. It's probably not to the height of what it will get to, but it will get there. And yes, you will probably see the days when our government will give decrees that are absolutely forbidden by our God. Do you obey them? Of course not. Of course not. But you also do it the right way. Are there times when we are, we are called and commanded to resist? Yes, absolutely. The scriptures are replete with those examples, not just in the Old Testament, but the New as well. Listen, Paul had to hide from the The guy that wrote Romans 13 had to hide from the authorities. Obviously, there are times when you, are, you cannot obey the government. Look, if Paul didn't believe that, he wouldn't have been lowered down in a basket, right? <laughs> hey, the king is basically looking for Paul, and Paul should just turn himself in then. No. Paul says, lower me down. I think that was very shrewd, which also tells me he was smaller than me. I don't think you could have got me down the wall. I would have been down the wall, probably through the basket, right? Like, we let him down. He's a little worse for wear. <laughs> what happened to you? Well, uh, fat guys bounce when they hit the bottom. That's what I did. <laughs> but yes, there are times when we will not be able to obey. Which is why you need to know the Scriptures. If you don't know the Scriptures, you won't know when you should or should not obey. There are times that the government will tell you or your boss will tell you something that's not right. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to be honorable. You're going to be respectful. But you're going to honor King Jesus overall. All authority in heaven and earth has not been given to my boss. It's not been given to the government. It's not been given to any judge. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He is the King of kings. And when my king, my earthly king, my earthly authority, tells me to do something that King Jesus strictly forbids... King Jesus gets the last say. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I know this part of your word is tough. It requires wrestling. It requires knowing your word. It requires knowing other scriptures. It requires bringing other parts of your word to bear. Father, I ask two things that you would, number one, make us a people of your word. That we wouldn't just talk about your word, God, but that we would know your word. And two, Lord, that we would be people who reflect you. That even in those times when we cannot obey, that we are still doing it with honor, with reverence, with respect. It's hard to do that, God. It's hard to, to deal truth with grace, and yet I ask you to let us do it. Start with me. You well know I can have an acrid tongue. Father, let me speak truth with grace. Let us be a people who reflect you, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.